welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Well, welcome back. It is our third installment um, as the bullet point follow-up to our echo today on COVID. What an amazing echo we had today, Kurt. It was amazing, but frankly, I'm getting tired. Uh, We've done three echoes and two podcasts in three days. and Now we've done four echoes. Four echoes, two podcasts. And a partridge and a pear tree. And a lot of ibuprofen, (laughs) as they say in the small communities, ibuprofen. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what went on today. It was actually a extremely helpful uh, talks that were given, extremely helpful talks. And uh, I think uh, Dr. Robin Patel uh, started off our talks today. She's the clinical, uh, in the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic and president of the American Society of Microbiology. And, and uh, she was absolutely a fabulous speaker. Not to mention, she had a green screen of agar. Yeah, she had stuff growing uh, on agar behind her, so... It was uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. So, you know, she really started out, and I think this was just perfectly well-timed for today, talking about the different types of tests um, to check for coronavirus or, you know, the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, first, the nucleic acid amplification test. So this is your PCR test. It looks at the RNA. It measures the viral RNA, and it can really measure that current exposure um, again, though, it depends on the timing of the infection and the timing in which the swab was done. There's a lot of factors, and we'll get to that. Uh, the other thing that is important to understand, and she pointed this out, is that it does not necessarily tell you that it's viable RNA. And I think that was something that she made us a significant point out. It just checks RNA. Correct. So then the second type she talked about, which is also being looked at in studies, is this antibody detection. So this is the serology. Hold it. I meant viable virus. Start over. Yes, viable virus. So the second is the antibody detection. So the serology, looking for antibodies, IgM and IgG. This would be more, especially that IgG, the past exposure. It's not necessarily an appropriate means for testing someone with an acute illness. So this takes time for your body to develop these antibodies, and I think that's the key. Now, one way they're starting to look at this, at least in research, is to see who has maybe some protective immunity. Is there herd immunity? Is there such thing as immunity to to coronavirus? Some say you can't get it more than once. Some say you can. This is all being studied, looking at these antibody testing. Um, But in some places, they might be looking at this to kind of help determine if people are ready to go back to work. Um, I guess, especially in a place, you know, like healthcare workers, potentially that would be in a, a high risk um, to spread this illness to make sure that they are more immune. Um, and then also just public health and, and departments of health looking at these antibodies to kind of figure out where this virus has been and the surveillance of it over time. Yeah, and it's important to understand that at this point she felt that a lot of studies were going to be needed to really tell how we can use this this test and how it's going to most benefit us. Uh, she also spent a little time talking about fecal testing and uh, whether or not that was helpful. And it wasn't really clear that it was uh, was going to be useful at this point, but it's something that people have talked a lot about. 
And she talked a little bit about how the FDA is working on somewhat easing the restrictions on who can be tested. And in in fact, in Minnesota now, uh, that has even been uh, loosened up a little bit. uh, And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, The... uh, the restrictions for testing are basically, in her opinion, still that shortages of reagents. Uh, but notice even in the last few days that a lot of this has changed for Minnesotans. When I think you got to think about all the different steps of testing, whether it's the swab itself, the, the reagent that it's mixed in, the actual lab being able to perform this, all these different things we don't always think about, um, especially because really the, the number one testing that's still recommended is that PCR, nucleic acid amplification test. And, and I think to, to be clear, one of, the, one of the interesting things that you talked about is that if we really think about it just a 120-some days ago, uh, this, this disease was not an issue. And so when they started uh, looking at this particular problem, COVID really had no testing available. And so uh, we've certainly come a long way, and a lot of the testing has been approved very quickly and expedited. And so uh, studies on these have not been uh, very thorough at this point. And exactly on that point is it's it's hard to know what's a good test, how sensitive a test it is. Um, there's different people who say that how aggressive the swab is may or may not make it a good test. Whether you should do it in both nares is a good test. You should get some oropharyngeal swabbing, um, especially depending on the symptoms the patient has. Actually, if if they have more um, deep secretion type uh, in the lungs, that actually might be a better test than the nasal the nasal swabs. Just lots of different variables. Now she spent a little time talking about you know whether we should be retesting people if somebody's a negative right away. Uh, and they're outpatient, do we retest them if they're not getting better or what do we do? And at this point, because of the lack of resources, uh, she recommended unless there was a significant decline, that it was probably not a reasonable thing to be doing testing to save that for other people that might need that. Obviously, if we look at the critically ill patients that are hospitalized, it may be appropriate to retest, uh, you know, depending on the context. And I, I, I just want to say when when she was talking about that, I found it interesting to to kind of put myself in in Wuhan and picture back in China, she said that people would be um, tested and not released from the hospital until their PCR was negative and their CT had gotten better. Um, and it, it just seems a little bit delayed, but I guess, you know, this is a brand new disease back then. This disease was like five days old. Like they didn't know what they were doing. Like yeah. I can't imagine. And part of the problem is that, that uh, she talked a lot about how we don't know how fast the virus clears. And so it's really complicated as far as how do we make recommendations to when to retest or when to send people back. And so I think that's uh, something that hopefully will be worked out over time. Um, and and really, if you look at the different tests that she discussed, she said she basically uh, pointed out that the targets that these P- PCRs use are different. And so it's really tough even to compare the tests. And then we, we kind of finished with some questions. Um, postmortem testing, uh, you know, a person has died, you don't know the cause of death. And uh, do you test then? She said most people already have the diagnosis prior to dying, um, but it's definitely something that can be looked at, especially with, um, you know, with your um, pathologist at time of death. Any final thoughts, Kurt, on uh, what Dr. Patel had to say? I don't have many. I think uh, <laughs> I think her talk was amazing. I think that if if you have a lot more time than just listening to um, just listening to us, you can go back and uh, go to Katie Stangle at CatholicHealth.net and 
she can get you the recording of this and watch the whole thing. Well, uh, and even at our website, there's the paper that she referred back to. There's a chart that really explains the differences between the, the, the PCR and the antibody testing, just a super simple chart, just to even have that available to look at. I guess I was stunned how easy to understand a microbiologist was. She was so, it was such a great talk. And I think she, she really made it uh, an enjoyable talk. And I think that uh, listening to her was uh, hopefully uh, uh, helpful for everyone else. And, and frankly, we're going to be having her back uh, if she will allow us to. So a wonderful talk. And thanks again to Mayo Clinic and, and to Dr. Patel. And then we switched over to another very important chair of another very important department, uh, Dr. Gopal Punjabi, who is the chair of radiology at Hennepin Healthcare. That's easy for you to say. It is not easy for me to say, but I don't think I butchered it too badly today when he was there. Um, he, I, I found these two, how they somehow ended up today together, very fitting. Um, the diagnoses and the, just the different ways you know, first, um, Dr. Patel talking about the actual lab testing and then switching over to Dr. Bunjabi talking about the, the radiographical findings, the CT, chest x-rays, and just some classic things you can see with COVID that, you know, are still new to even radiologists around the country. Yeah, and I, I was honestly, uh, I was impressed by really how, how much he had really looked into this and how I obviously had a real passion for this. And, and I believe that everybody that was listening to him, we had over 500 people on uh, earlier today, uh, found this just as an amazing talk. And I think every single human that heard that today and hopefully will hear this going forward We'll know what a GGO is, the ground glass opacities. I thought it was GTO at first. I'm thinking the guy, the guy Driving drives a car. It, he's got a car. <laughs> but these ground glass opacities, which, you know, I can think back to medical school and residency, and I'm pretty sure I don't recall ever learning these things. But the way that he was able to describe them, kind of this haziness in the lungs, especially in the periphery and the basilar areas of the lungs, where you can still kind of make out the blood vessels that's your ground glass opacities as opposed to straight consolidation. Cons- consolidation. And when you have consolidation, you do not see the blood vessels. And that's really the difference in what they're noticing on these CT scans. And the scans, uh, please, again, you can, you can watch the whole echo. And if you want to see him uh, talk your, his way through these scans, uh, I think you'll, you can learn a lot. And the, the debate about whether CT should be used to help with screening patients or in diagnoses. Um, there were studies out of China where they did. People who were a little bit more high risk, they sent them right to the CT scanner. Um, people were showing positive CT scans for, for COVID, even though they had a negative PCR. Um, there are studies out there that show that patients come in with a trauma and they find COVID um, in their scans. It's just fascinating. Um, in New York now, with their just overabundance of sadness and despair, and has started to use CT scans somewhat as well um, to help with, you know, diagnosing this horrible disease. Do we want to talk about this technique that they're using presently at Hennepin Healthcare? I think technique is good. I think, um, especially as a primary care doctor, knowing knowing what test to order, especially when it comes to CT scans, is always that little bit of a challenging thing. You always think, oh gosh, with or without. Yeah, and so one of the things they they typically start with if they're going to scan people uh, is really going to that non-contrast CT, uh, starting with that. And of course, um, you know, obviously the the plain chest X-rays are obviously still being used, uh, 
Uh, but often uh, these will not show as much. And if there is a negative COVID or they have uh, concerns that they're missing something, that non-contrast CT can really uh, uh, be a, a nice way to do that. Now, the, he talked about their policy of doing this as a more of a peak inspiration uh so often when we're doing other CTs, uh, the patient can just continue to lightly breathe. And with this, they want peak inspiration. Uh, and they really go from the apices right to the bases, uh, really including those uh, CP angles. So, you know, they're they're really looking to expand that chest when they're taking those uh, CTs uh, in three-millimeter three cuts uh, uh, with, with the SD windows. Wow, that was... Very I sound, impressive. I sounded like a radiologist. You sounded very smart. You know, and I never even thought about that whole inspiration thing you just mentioned. But, I mean, it really does make sense to, to take that full breath. You can really get that GGO. And, of course, they've done some things differently in their in their uh, radiology department. He talked a little bit about what they're doing to protect their techs, uh, how they're typically universally masking, using eye protection and gloves. Uh, and actually, of course, when they're doing anything where there might be aerosolization, they're wearing N95s and pappers. And 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 really, um, you know, if these patients are masked uh, and they're otherwise uh, uh, no other concerns, they frequently will then just clean normally and not do a deep clean uh, for the next scan. So they do mask the patients in there as well. And finally, before he got to questions, he talked about the different ways of reporting this from a radiologist point of view. And this is the second time this week from the second radiologist we've really heard that if there's this concern for coronavirus or COVID, um, to really have that classification somewhere in in the final radiology read, whether it's typical of COVID, intermediate, atypical, or completely negative, with explaining why or why not, um, just to kind of help break it down, especially when it is so rampant right now, and uh, with PCR sometimes negative and the CT is positive, just to kind of help not spread this virus because of missing a diagnosis. Yeah, and one of the things that he wanted to make really clear to the primary care doctors in the crowd was really that chest X-ray and the CT are, are really fairly sensitive early on, but they're not necessarily specific. And there are other things uh, that can look like that, even a regular old influenza A or uh, some of the connective tissue diseases uh, can also um, uh, show up that way. And so they can look similar as somebody who's positive for COVID. So uh, you can't necessarily jump to a conclusion, uh, but again, it does. COVID does have a fairly particular look. And the, the role is going to be continuing to evolve, and I think all of the colleges of radiology kind of all agree on this, that it's, it is evolving. Um, they haven't looked much at ultrasound in our country in Italy. They did a little bit of point-of-care ultrasound, not really shown to be all that effective here, and infection control risks here. Um, but that if it's a severe illness and you need to, to re-image on multiple days, it's okay. We always kind of worry, at least I always worry about the radiation exposure, but you know, he had a good point during a pandemic. That's like the least of your concerns. So Dr. Punjabi, I mean, I just like to say his name. I know it's way more fun than I think if Bell. I was if I was Kurt Punjabi, I'd I'd sound way better than Divine. But he suggested that that really when you look at when do you scan patients, that that really these patients with mild symptoms may not need a scan. It's more the patients with moderate to severe, moderate to severe symptoms, uh, and and really, uh, if you have to rescan them or they've had other scans, that really we're not really going to be too concerned about how much radiation these patients get during the middle of a pandemic. If you I need, I think the, Kurt is tired. I'm pretty sure I just said that. Did you just? Say that? <laughs> <laughs> I've been up for like 68 hours. Um, okay, so. 
It's <laughs> so one of the other things that he talked about was some of the confusion too with. Uh, a lot of these patients have the really high D-dimers, and there's a fair amount of these that have had, uh, you know, PEs. And so it's something as well that we need to understand. And, of course, the scanning may need to be different for that, or it may need to be done with or without uh, contrast to get both that those types of information. Um, and, again, as far as ED, uh, they're still doing portable imaging in their ED if they start with the chest X-ray. And when they're moving them to a CT, again, non-contrast CT. I hope you didn't already say all that. That was perfect. Um, so, yeah, and, and Dr. Punjabi, hopefully he comes back again because I just think this is super fascinating, especially as we hopefully in Minnesota, ho- not hopefully have a cases to start reviewing during our echoes, but if we do have cases to review, we, we have some more expertise. Yeah, and then we, you know, evolved over to your friend Joe Helly. Well, I was just first going to say again, we really want to thank Dr. Punjabi and, and Hennepin Healthcare uh, for making them available to us, and it was a... Uh, Hopefully something we can repeat. Well, which and Dr. Reznikoff, our favorite for sharing him. Yeah. And so let's talk next about Dr. Joe Helly. Dr. Joe Helly. Oh, well, that's right. He's not a doctor. <laughs> he just plays one on the emergency yeah. preparedness team. Okay. And he's Joe comes f- to us from uh, Centricare. He's working with the uh, emergency team down in, in the Twin Cities. We don't even know what they're called anymore. We've called them just about everything. And uh, But uh, it's the, the team. Incident that, commanders. The incident commanders. <laughs> Um, but he showed some very nice uh, um, different slides about uh, what Governor Waltz had presented the day before, again, uh, suggesting that the peak may hit from May to July and how we're trying to push that peak by the social distancing and trying to make that so that we don't run out of our ventilators and we don't run out of hospital beds. And I, I think Joe said it so well today, probably better than I've heard it said at this point. Um, the point is not to necessarily push this curve to, to make it just go away. It's to push it so we have all the adequate supplies, ventilators and beds and PPE available for all these people when the surge does hit. Um, you hear people saying, well, let's just let it hit and then it can be over with. Well, then more people are going to die because you just won't have the availability of all the equipment and all the things to take care of them. And so with all of that, um, he explains how they're working and getting more vents brought in, how the federal government is still controlling some of these supplies, and that we're working on hopefully getting supplies from other states and other areas of the country where their surge might be on their way, its way down already. Yeah, you actually mentioned how North Dakota has just tons of PPEs, which makes me think we should maybe form a raid, but I don't think that's legal. But they uh, they apparently have quite a few. And, and I, I think like that, how you chose raid instead of just moved to North Dakota. <laughs> yeah, I could, I'm going to move there so then I can have a mask. Um, and so, and, and really, I think all the border states are working together. And he talked a little bit about how they've, they've been having a fair amount of contact between the states uh, as far as how they're going to manage if we uh, get a surge at similar times. Or if, or, or if by some luck, there's some uh, some staggering of that. Um, and I and then he talked a little bit about Mayo Clinic opening up some of their testing. Now we're hopefully going to have a little bit increased capacity, and I think uh, our uh, Dr. Patel also talked about that a little bit uh, that they have a lot more capacity at this point. And one of the things that's changed at the at the state level as far as testing is the daycare providers, which are now added to that list. And to be clear, we are also testing healthcare workers. We're uh, testing people in congregate living. Please go to the MDH website. Uh, for that updated information. But unlike New York, we're not testing tigers Yeah, yet. We, we we have not started testing tigers. I think we've mentioned that previously. 
<laughs> when you have two tigers in town. And, you know, the questions got asked as far as since we're not in this surge or the surge isn't expected for a month or two or three yet, what about all these other chronic health issues that we see, especially in rural Minnesota where our population is a little bit older and a little bit more chronic health impaired, I guess? Um, it, it's still best to not have them come into the clinic. It's still best to do telemedicine, um, have home health draw blood, have drive-through lab tests for these patients that need their blood drawn. Um, it's still imperative to keep that social distancing, to keep the people out of the clinic, um, to keep them as healthy as possible, um, and try to work around all the other things um, for the safety and health of everybody. Yeah, so I think that's, uh, you know, I think Dr. Bell and I have had uh, uh, have a lot of conversations about this, and we're really doing our best not to bring uh, patients that we've been doing heavily uh, on the tele- telemed side, uh, which I, I think everybody is, and I think is probably our best bet unless we don't need to bring them to the clinic. Um, he did talk a little bit about some of the creative solutions people have had uh, for eyewear and shields and uh, hoods and collars, and there are a lot of things out there uh, which uh, at times might seem a little um, a little unusual. I don't uh, recommend putting the plastic bag over your head at home. Yes, that's one of the things that... Uh, uh, that he kind of talked about, but not really. Um, and again, uh, one last discussion really about these alternative care sites and that, again, the state is going to try and use the hospital beds first and only will we move to these uh, other facilities. Uh, only time we would move to them is really if we had exhausted other options, and hopefully that won't happen if we push the curve. Push the curve. So with that, um, super excited about next week. Uh, next Tuesday, I think we're going to have Dr. Linda Susi back talking about a day in the life of a hospitalist in the cities dealing with um, the the influx of COVID patients. And then hopefully next Thursday, we will have Dr. Colleen Reed, who's from Boston, talking about end of life and palliative type issues um, that nobody really wants to talk about, but that unfortunately has become such a big topic. We all need to be comfortable having this there's conversation. Also, there's also a testing uh, talk on Tuesday. Testing talk from the Assistant Commissioner of Health, Mr. Huff. I think it's Huff. Yes, talking about testing from the state. So if you need anything, please go to the Minnesota Academy of Family Practice website. There'll be uh, links there for different things that uh, have been done, including, uh, including uh, I think, ways to get it out our echo. Uh, again, Katie Stangle at catholichealth.net. Good work, Kurt. That's uh, K-A-T-I-E-S-T-A-N-G-L. Wow. And she can show you how to get the recording of the echo. And again, I would recommend it uh, for those two talks, especially the uh, x-rays and CTs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, our Twitter is at echo C-S-C-T. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And we'll be back probably Tuesday night. Tuesday night. Thanks very much.